You're listening to Monocle on Sunday, first broadcast on the 20th of June 2021 on Monocle 24. Good morning from Zurich. You're listening to Monocle on Sunday with me, Tyler Brule. Joining me around the microphones here at Dufourstrasse 90, our regular voices, Chandra Kurt and Benno Zog. Benno has the newspapers open in front of him. What's caught your eye, Benno? Well, even days after the Geneva summit, Putin-Biden's meeting does still make headlines. What can we expect in the weeks and months to come? What could have been done differently? What was Geneva's role? But also, in another paper, a story caught my eye about a ghost ship. Looking forward to that. Also, our editor-in-chief, Andrew Tuck, is on the other side of the channel. Our James Chambers will be joining us from Hong Kong. Plus, we'll head to Copenhagen to find out what readers are buying there. It's the 20th of June, 2021. Live from Zurich, this is Monocle on Sunday. Well, good morning from a very, very muggy Zurich. You're listening to Monocle on Sunday with me, Tyler Brule. I'm very happy to say that Chandra Kurt is here, of course, regular contributor. She's also uh, of the Wine Cellar Journal. Just before we went on air, uh, we were talking, we heard in the, the news report at the top of the program, Chandra, um, that, uh, of course, we've seen a, a very famous uh, European leader who really sort of paved the path to sort of many institutions. So he could be on the fast track to sainthood. You've almost become a wine saint this weekend. I, I gather that uh, you were 1,400 meters up. Uh, a guild has um, given you something, but maybe tell us more. Exactly. It's uh, it's the guild, the Heidatzumpf. So they, they, had, they had long the highest vineyard in, in Europe. It was in Wisp in Switzerland. Now there's a higher one in Tenerife. But still the grapes are called, you know, close to the skies, close to God. And uh, and it's it's a guild and, and they cultivate this, this, this Haida grape, which is an indigenous Swiss grape, very, very special. And um, and so we have a few people. We have four people now, I think, or five that got this this prize. I got the, I got the wine. I got the wine with my name on it. I had to plant something in front. It was a little bit difficult yesterday. So I was on on this fourteen hundred meters, twelve hundred meters. It was and listeners can't see this, but you caught the sun as well. I, yeah, I mean, I, I'm you, a little bit. Yeah. I put sun cream in my face, but not on my arm. So my arm is now all a little bit but reddish. That's, but that's sort of very farmer style, though, isn't it? Very farmer style. Really. Me, me, I'm a real good farmer. You know, with my <laughs> shoes, it wasn't really the, the right shoes to go up there. But but I mean. But you know, when you stand up there and you look down, it's, it's steep down. It, you, you, you almost it takes you down. It's such an energy that takes you back to the valley. But it was a wonderful afternoon and to do a hell of a work to to preserve this grape. And uh, and so next there's a um, Adolf Ogi, our former Bundesrat, is also an Ehrenmitglied, and Madeleine Gay, uh, uh, the Grand Dame Divin Suisse, and. Um, the Sankt Jodenkellerei, so I'm in a good company. Very, very good. Ben Ozog is here. That is a story. How are you going to live up to that this morning? Of course, uh, Ben Ozog uh, is with the Security Studies uh, program at ETH, uh, also our security correspondent uh, as well. Top that one on a Sunday morning. <laughs> Impossible. I haven't come anywhere close to the gods uh, as Chandra has. Even though this week I attended... Uh, a very interesting international conference in Bratislava, Slovakia, as part of a young leader cohort, some fascinating characters, to have this sense of of a normal conference, if you will, with inputs from experts, from ministers around the world, and discussing that even in small, closed settings with within this young leader group, it felt like being close to heaven. 
Okay. Um, almost, but not, but not quite. Anyway, I want to hear more about Bratislava a little bit later. Andrew Tucker, our editor-in-chief, uh, uh, is in London uh, as well. I believe he's in London anyway. At least I know he's in the UK. Uh, but I think I'm seeing you later today. Good morning, Andrew. Uh, good morning, Tyler. Yes, I'm, I'm going to be meeting up with you, not in Zurich, because the Swiss are very, being very mean to Brits at the moment and not letting us in unless we want to uh, spend 10 days in quarantine. So we're going to be meeting in Athens this evening. I'm very much looking, looking forward to that. We'll talk uh, about all things Greek uh, in, in a moment. But what's, um, give us the scene from, from London. I mean, aside, of course, Emma, as we were going into the top of the, the program before we started, was talking about uh, the weather has taken a, a, bit of a, a bit of a turn. Well, the weather's not so, so nice, but seeing as I came back from Spain and I had to be in quarantine until I came to see you, I've been rather glad that it's been miserable weather outside. I don't want people out there enjoying themselves. To hell with that. Um, I'm very glad that everyone's been stuck at home like me. But the, the newspaper mood is, is, of course, you know, what's going to happen with these numbers? They're, they're ticking up still, but everybody's now saying actually it's not going to be as alarmist as you think. There'll be a peak in two weeks and then they'll come down the other side. And while Europe is thumbing its nose a little bit at the UK, one of the papers points out this morning that in France, numbers of the Indian or now called Delta variant has gone from 0.5% of total cases to 2.5% of cases. And this is exactly the position that the UK was in just some four or five weeks ago. So it's, it's felt that while we have, may have got this variant first, it's, it's kind of unstoppable. So people will have to learn how to deal with it in the coming weeks. And certainly the UK papers are keen for the UK economy, I think, in all parts uh, to get going. Mm. Um, Andrew, in your uh, column uh, this week, and speaking about the, the UK economy, it's, it's something, the story which um, has been ping-ponging back and forth. And there was a piece you wrote uh, about uh, a significant redevelopment uh, on, on Oxford Street. Actually, there's two, two sort of major things that are happening on Oxford Street, or you could say there's, there's even many more. Um, but, uh, and this, you know, sandwiched in between as well, of course, one of Europe's most high-profile uh, department stores as well is also uh, up for sale as well. Well, let's not pretend that Oxford Street is a place that you and me would particularly spend a large amount of our time. It's, 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 it's a mid-market uh, thoroughfare with, with a few key anchor tenants such as Selfridges. But it is a bit of a bellwether for London, and, and that's why I'm intrigued to see what happens. So Westminster Council, who looks after them, uh, after it, is, is putting up some £140 million, supposedly, to regenerate this, this retail strip. But many of the stores on there are already making their own plans. Marks and Spencer's has a huge store since it's had since the 1930s. It's not going to repopulate that store as a retail space ever fully again. So they're going to rent off some of the stores. Selfridges has put itself up for sale. And the analysts think that it's because they're thinking it's going to be a long, long time before you get back to the numbers of Gulf, Emirati, Chinese tourists that you need to sustain that. But yes, they've said that Oxford Circus, the junction with uh, with Regent Street, is going to be turned into an Italian-style piazza, which always makes your heart sink because you know, you know what a real Italian-style piazza looks like, and this ain't going to be one. But it is going to be pedestrianised. And again, this is one of these things that has been fought over for like maybe two decades, pedestrianising parts of Oxford Street always failed because cabbies, bus drivers pointed out it's going to be a bit of a nightmare. But now in the pandemic, with things a little bit quieter, they're, they're going to push through with it. So it'll be interesting to see what happened. Meanwhile, at the other end, if you go to Marble Arch, you'll see they're erecting this huge scaffolding for building this new mud 
hill for the summer and beyond by uh, MVRDV, the, our friends, Vinnie Mass, the architects in, in Netherlands. Lots of things being done to try and kickstart the street. And it sounds a little bit like maybe Chandra's not going to be scaling um, <laughs> that, uh, that particular uh, mound uh, either, because I can imagine what it's going to be like on a bit, of a bit of a soggy day. If sort of Chandra was sort of worried about falling through the height of grapes, you could sort of imagine her sort of landing in front of M&S, couldn't you? <laughs> Yeah, and I got, I've got a feeling it's going to be get some criticism, a bit like the Thomas Heatherwick uh, New Park in New York, because you'll need a ticket. It's going to be very controlled how you use it. It looks beautiful, looks a good Instagram moment, but how much it really adds to the, the space and the enjoyment of the city, we'll, we'll have to wait and see. Okay, I want to ask all of you, and I'm going to start, start with you, uh, Chandra. Uh, here they're sort of so they're promising this you know piazza in in an Italian style. Uh, this this of course major thoroughfare uh, Regent Street uh, intersecting with Oxford Street. Do you think that the Italian Ministry of Culture should should somehow put a trademark on Italian style piazza and say that this is a no go? You you are going to sort of break all international conventions. You're not allowed to co opt Italian culture. This is completely forbidden. Yeah, I think it's um, it's a daring daring uh, endeavor to to try to do this because you know piazza italiana you, you need the italians also you need how they speak the, 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 and then you need the smells of, of the food also maybe this you can engineer but but also the beauty how they dress you know italians even uh, when they go out they're always nicely dressed and uh, i don't know if you have so many italians there you have I, I, I don't know andrew have you spotted a lot of italians um <laughs> at this intersection I don't know, but I, I think that was a bit of a dig there from Chandra Kerr about how the British dress on the street. So I'm, I'm, I should be very wary about meeting you later. I'm going to have to go back to the wardrobe and repack, I think. Well, I, I'm gonna, we'll, we'll turn this over to, to, to Ben Ozog to, uh, to, to in, intervene in this one. But I was going to ask you, I mean, also, you, know, you see lots of people with, you know, flags on backpacks. Lots of countries are co-opted by brands. Should this be allowed? <laughs> well, during the Europe Cup, this is even more political, I guess. Um but I guess this would be a cheap way to to turn Regent Street or Oxford Street into an Italian piazza by just everyone waving Italian flags. Pretty sure that wouldn't work. No, um, Andrew, what I, I was curious, has this, has this kind of, I don't know, it's a sartorial automotive moment. I don't know if it's caught on in the UK, which is where people put these like little like socks or kind of like gloves on their, on their wing mirrors. Has this, has this caught on in London? God, you crazy cats in Switzerland. No, I know, it's, it's going here. nuts here. <laughs> no, I've not seen any stray socks or underwear hanging from anyone's, <laughs> anyone's wing mirrors at the moment. Uh, that, that's, well, that's maybe, maybe a, a good thing. I, I wanted to, Ben, just go, go over to you just to maybe, uh, maybe quickly uh, and, and maybe just reflect it very, very fast because we've talked a lot about the summit in Geneva this week. Maybe just getting your, your, your view now four days on from, uh, from what you made, of course, of the, the, the Putin-Biden Putin meeting in, in Geneva. Mm. Um, yeah, it's been, it's been chewed over and over again uh, across the papers, across media, every single detail of this in the end, only a few hour long uh, meeting has been dissected. But just a few points that I find quite interesting, maybe some, some small details. One was that Vladimir Putin seemed more cheerful than he has been in a very long time when he gave his press briefing afterwards, for example. All he did was answering journalists' questions and he seemed to enjoy it. He seemed to enjoy talking positively about Joe Biden and this experience, talking about the positive atmosphere, talking about the experience of uh, the leader that he met. Um, he offered the usual Russian 
whataboutism um, to counter any kind of criticism of their human rights records and so on. Um, but the very fact that Putin seemed to like this engagement, because in, in the past he seemed bored and disengaged at so many similar events at summits or press conferences and so on, was maybe a positive sign. And another detail was actually picked up by today's entity, I'm Sonntag, a Swiss newspaper. The article says, the return of the handshake, um, which actually talks about generally these diplomatic protocols ahead of these summits, how everyone has to agree on every single detail, whether there's... Um, water glasses on the on the table or not, where the seats are arranged, what kind of chairs there are, but also how leaders greet each other. And apparently with a bit of shuttle diplomacy back and forth, it was agreed that Swiss president as well as the Russian and US president will greet each other with a handshake and will not wear masks for the photo opportunity. And I think it's summed up very nicely in the article saying that a handshake builds trust and the symbolism of a handshake cannot be replaced with any other greeting. So that was a nice, nice detail as well. Uh, Chandra, just before we went on the program, uh, uh, you were saying that you were in Milan at the start of the week and then you were heading to Geneva. Were you were you part of the summit? I mean, oh, you, are, have, you, have you been keeping a bit of a secret? Because I was thinking thinking about Chandra's travels. So, so what, <laughs> Well, I would love to do the wine assortment for these kind of meetings, but this time I was there to taste the uh, 2020 vintage of Geneva wines. So uh, so I headed from Milano directly with the Domodossola with the train to, to Geneva. And did you uh, did you notice much of the circus? circus? Well, was it, was I, it a bit I, difficult in Geneva this week? I left, I was on Tuesday there and the, the meeting was on Wednesday so on Tuesday afternoon the, the fastest I could I left because they said they're going to close the city mm. so Andrew, Andrew, uh, obviously there was, there was many other things going on in the world. Uh, of course, we, we saw the U.S. press corps, you know, of course, you know, of course, descend on uh, Air Force One, uh, likewise, of the Russian press corps uh, as well. There was, you know, there was a great showing of, of, of journalists, but it was interesting when you watched the U.S. outlets, even, I mean, even watching uh, some of the U.K. news outlets as well. It wasn't sort of the dominant story, given that this was still, of course, you know, obviously a significant summit, but also, you know, a major outing for, for Biden as well. Well, I think here in the UK, it maybe didn't get quite as much press as would normally have happened because of the G7 and because they were still picking over everything from about, you know, was it fair that the, the leaders were allowed to meet here and have a picnic on the beach when normal British people couldn't gather in that quantities? So that even today, people are, uh, in, in the weekend papers still picking over the, the, the G7. So I think for that reason, it didn't get quite the same attention as normally. But I think there was a, a, a lot of coverage. And I think it's interesting hearing to Benno because everybody was trying to work out what, whether this had been a positive meeting or not positive meeting. So while he was smiling, there was lots of coverage here saying that it was a bit a bit too short of a meeting to be a real triumph. You'd you'd have hoped it had more that they wanted to talk about and that they'd tackled very easy subjects to begin with, but you know, that nuclear arms, for example, where they had there is where is some agreement. So I did I think it did get covered, but I think it, we're being very inward looking with the UK press for it for I'm sure because of the G seven. Better just looking ahead, um yeah, if there's, I mean, it's not sort of lessons learned from the past week, but certainly what does this mean for, for diplomats in Washington, uh, also Moscow, and of course capitals in between? Um, anything we can sort of look to from, from Geneva? It actually means something very tangible for diplomats, as in the US will reinstall their ambassador in Moscow and the Russians will do the same in Washington, D.C. And that is quite significant because they've been absent for, for more than a month in both cases. Um, 
I guess the the overly dramatic headlines that we've seen dissecting every detail of a summit that was fairly short and did not entail too many tangible results um, was a bit off because we should watch out in the, in the coming months what actually comes out of it. Um, because there were only declarations of intent so far, if you will, to open chapters of dialogue, working groups and so on between the two nations. And that's where the actual substance comes in, apart from the nice photo ops and handshakes and a couple of hours of sitting down together, not even sharing a meal or so. Um, so the trust building was fairly limited. It is coming now when actually experts and diplomats talk in working groups on nuclear arms control, for example, and more tangibly and significantly on cybersecurity, which is one of the most massive allegations from one uh, part against the other of cyber attacks against critical infrastructure in the US, for example, in the past weeks. So them sitting together and coming up with an actual list of critical infrastructure that should not be attacked um, through cyber means and uh, the intent to combat cyber crime as well, a common goal that should be obvious one would think this is where it gets tangible and this is where we see the real substance of whether anything was achieved in Geneva there will not be 3,000 journalists present to cover any of these working groups work but we'll certainly have an eye on it Chandra let's go back to Geneva and uh, to the wine tasting and warming up for the uh, the exciting part of, of the show the 2020 uh, Geneva wines uh, that you were you were sampling anything anything outstanding any Sunday tips uh, that our listeners well, the nice be thing about Geneva is that it has also different um, signature in the wines than the other uh, six wine regions and they have a lot of nice Chardonnay wines and and Chenin Blanc and I tasted also some there's, there's a new grape called um, uh, I forgot, um, now I forgot the name. Okay, too many glasses. Yeah, too many there for glasses. Your, yeah, yeah, and uh, and they're very good. Also, like in French style wine, like Sauvignon, Sauvignon Blanc, and Viognier. So I, I I tasted mainly the white wines, which were which are ready right now. And you have a nice freshness. It, it's it's a, it's a drinkable, fresh, crispier the 2020. Okay, so uh, listeners, you know what happens now. This is uh, we're going to start with Benno. Uh, Benno, it's a humid day, uh, but it's not a bad day for wine. But uh, yeah. Give, give that brief to Chandra. What are you looking for this evening? Could be later in the week. Far away. Actually, it's a very evening because it's supposed to stay a very hot and humid day. So I wonder if I go for a swim, I may bring a water cooler. What would you recommend? Good. Water cooler, meaning water cooler with ice in it as oh, well. Oh, yes, of course. Everything. Okay. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> okay, good. Uh, Emma Nelson uh, in, in London. Uh, I, I, I believe also you had um, a very nice, you had a nice lunch this week um, uh, in, in, in one of our favorite cafes uh, in, in London. Um, so I'm sure there's probably some reflection on that, but also maybe we'd keen to know how this impacts your Sunday as well. I, I did. It was a saintly experience on all, on all sides. It was absolutely wonderful and, 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 and a few elements of magic happened there. Actually, Chandra, we drank a wine whose winery we visited in Italy a few few years ago. We, what we do is we normally look at um, the, this restaurant's wine list and try and drive it whenever we can. Um, but actually, the, the, the tone changed rather sharply during the week, Chandra, and I am, I'm in need of a bit of wine diplomacy from you. Um, my son and his whole class got into trouble with their teacher, Oh. For for a, 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 a something trifling, I am now in charge of the apology committee. For what, a teacher. What's a good yeah. wine to give to a teacher to say sorry when the collective remorse from the parents is lukewarm? 
Okay. Oh, wow. <laughs> okay, are you going to hold listeners in suspense? <laughs> you, okay, sorry, go ahead, John. No, no, you know, as not having children, I have a lot of experience with teacher to apologize, but I will, I will try to be creative. It's, it's, a, it's, it's a generic question. When, you're, when you have to look as if you're sorry, what do you yeah. give someone? Oh, this helps. Good. Is there, Emma, an important question, though? I'm not, how many parents are chipping in? Uh, are we, is Chandra working to a budget? I think we are working to a budget, Chandra. <laughs> you, don't, you don't want to buy him off, so we have to be careful. Exactly. It's a very delicate question. I, I need your help with it. Uh, Andrew, I'm not sure how you're, you're getting uh, to, to Greece, uh, but uh, maybe, maybe there is a, a bottle before departure, but I wouldn't maybe be relying too much on the trolley on uh, Aegean or British Airways. No, but maybe that's a good place to start, actually. Chandra, if you were in charge of stocking the trolley, what do you think is a good wine that travels well at that altitude and actually still tastes like the makers hoped it would taste if you uncork it all that, all that way up in the sky? Good. You know, I, I work for, for, in this topic, I work for Swiss to, to choose the wines that we have on the airline, so I might know a few wines. That's good. Okay. Also, because I, I'm going to be flying Swiss in a few hours to, to Athens, so I'll let you know when I land. <laughs> uh, Chandra, one, one for me very, uh, very quickly. So Andrew is going to be uh, joining us uh, in, in Athens uh, later today. Um, hopefully we're convening at about uh, the same time. I see maybe, you know, the light dancing on the Mediterranean, the sun might be going down. Mm-hmm. Can you recommend, is, is, is there a decent wine for us, um, even a very good wine uh, that we might want to uh, uncork uh, down, uh, down the coast south of Athens? A Greek wine. I think it should yeah, probably it should be a Greek, Greek wine. wine. Yeah, I will find. And, and, and listeners, you should always know that Chandra said, Chandra, it's, it's, you should always have a, a good Santorini white in the, in the fridge, right? For, for all, all occasions, all time of year. It's, it's like a blue chip. You're, you're safe with it. <laughs> I, I like it. Uh, Benno, at the start of the program, you said that you, you had uh, a little story for us about, about a ghost ship. And uh, I think everyone, I mean, there's, there's something about ghost ships. Uh, if, if, it's, if we're, you know, and I'm thinking off the back, of course, um, the, the tsunami and earthquake in Japan, where we saw all of these, these eerie fishing vessels uh, washing up on the, the uh, North American West Coast and, and elsewhere. But what have, what have you uncovered for us today? Or not, as the case may be. It's actually quite a big story in today's Enzatedamsontag. It says, on the ghost ship, and the irony of it is that it isn't actually a ghost ship. Only in international law it's considered a ghost ship. But let me tell you the story, because we're talking about an odyssey of 19 months of a ship that was sailed out of a port in Oman, so in the Middle East, heading to Bangladesh under the flag of Palau, a tiny Pacific nation. Um, but halfway, halfway on its journey, it was rerouted by its Kuwaiti owners to the United Arab Emirates, where it's supposed to take on another load of goods, which never happened. Um, it was stopped about 20 or 25 nautical miles outside of this uh, Emirati, Emirati port and stuck there without news. The crew was on board, the goods were on board, but there was no plan of where to go, where to unload, where to load, or how to feed this crew. So for months and months, they stayed on this boat in some kind of international legal limbo without anyone taking care of them. Naturally, there was a bit of a mutiny on board among the crew members, a mix of nations, the likes of Filipinos, Indians, and so on, as we know. Um, No salaries were paid. They ran out of fresh water and food. 
and only 19 months later, the Kuwaiti authorities allow them to enter their port and to allow the crew to return to their homes without pay. It's quite an interesting story. So a ghost ship that isn't a ghost ship, but maybe members of these crew have almost turned into ghosts over the course of these 19 months. It points to all these supply lines that we take for granted. Um, International shipping that is as international as it gets in every sense of the word when it comes to the flags of the ship, the owners, the owners of the cargo, the nationalities of, of the crews. And it also points to the lack of, there are regulatory tools, there are international agreements, but very often um, crews and ships are caught in between them. Even ships are towed out of ports to basically sent them to international waters to get rid of the problem. And unfortunately, the article also concludes, these incidents have been on the rise, naturally with a pandemic disrupting all of these supply lines and shipping. So there's been a doubling of such incidents to several dozens a year over the course of the past years. So quite an interesting story overall about an issue that is so different to our everyday lives, to our everyday worries, but it is an issue of modern slavery, of ghost ships that aren't ghost ships. So it naturally caught my eye in the papers. And just because I've not read the piece yet, but is it driven by uh, by an NGO investigation? What, what's the starting point uh, for, for the story? Or is it just a, you know, a piece of good old fashioned NZZ journalism? Um, it appears to be so, yes. There are some, some NGOs cited in there as well. There's actually quite... Um, they're doing extensive work about saving these sailors in a way and um, taking care of their rights and their very supplies, if you will. So NGOs are very important in that because particularly no country at times feels responsible for them. Neither the owners of the ship, of the cargo, um, of the ports in which they may be or of the coast of whose country they may they may be stuck. Um, but it's, it's a classical reportage, if you will, of these sailors being interviewed. It's from their perspective, um, particularly the one captain of this ship against whom the mutiny happened at some point. He was imprisoned by his fellow crewmen for five months on board of the ship until, a small irony coming in, until everyone on board realized that they're on the same, in the same boat, if you will, when it comes to that. So, so quite a classical piece of journalism. Um, it, the narrative flows really well, but it's, it's worrying through and through that these kind of incidents can happen and apparently not just once, but several times. Indeed. Uh, we're going to uh, be heading to Hong Kong um, in a moment, talking to our James Chambers. Also, we're heading to Copenhagen. We're going to be visiting uh, a very nice bookshop where we spent a little bit of time uh, recently. And of course, we'll have the wrap-up from Chandra Curtin in the second part of the programme. But now we're heading over to London. I believe Emma Nelson is there. Uh, probably sort of with a, Is there a collection plate going on for that bottle of wine, Emma? But I, I believe <laughs> b- b- before all of that, you've got the news headlines for us. <laughs> Thank you, Tyler. The number of people in Brazil who've died with the coronavirus has now passed half a million as it struggles to cope with a third wave of the pandemic. A group of Ugandan athletes and officials have become the second delegation to arrive in Japan ahead of the Tokyo Olympics next month, but one of the nine new arrivals has tested positive for coronavirus at the airport. And for anyone facing the problem of how to preserve the fizz in an open bottle of sparkling wine, the founder of a wine stopper company believes he has the answer. Coravin founder Greg Lambrecht has created a universal fit stopper with a handheld charging unit to maintain sparkling wine's carbonation level between pours, providing two weeks of preservation. And those are the headlines. Back to you, Tyler and Zurich. Oh, if only we had a camera here in studio to see <laughs> Chandra Kurt's face right now. First, there was well, first there was just sort of like sort of a, a small bird, just sort of like 
looking up and sort of gazing around. And then there was sort of a just a very brief nodding of head, then just some shaking of the head. And, and she went back to her notes. Does that surprise you, Emma? Not at all. Um, I, frankly, it's a problem that I've never encountered. And I don't know what I would... I've never encountered a bottle of sparkling wine for, for more than... Well, not two weeks, let's be honest. Well, Chandra, I mean, there, therein lies the problem. I mean, maybe that, 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 bottle of, that bottle is going to last till the next evening. Maybe. Mm, you know, it's not so simple. There's a reason why this was invented and you have it for the still wines and it's very popular and a lot of wine nerds love, love this tool you know you stick a needle for me just to stick a needle in the bottle I already you know it's like sticking in my body so it hurts me already but I understand because there are some very r- rare old wines that, that you know you cannot just drink like normal wines and then you do these little tastings and you, you at least got a little zip from this very rare wine but in Champagne now also it's, I know there are very old bottles and very special bottles and very expensive bottles like 2000 or more a bottle but you know still um, if you cannot really drink it it becomes almost more, um, you know, sci- too scientific. And I always thought wine shouldn't be, should be pleasure, not, not too much science. Absolutely. Emma, would you agree with that? Absolutely. I mean, this thing, apparently they're going to, uh, what happens is when you put the stopper on it, it, it refills the remaining space inside the bottle with carbon dioxide, which right. suddenly makes everything feel as if I'm trying to create the inside of an, of an aeroplane in my fridge. Yeah, yeah. No, no, it's, it's um, you know, let's say that there are some people that love that, but we, we finish the bottles here around the table. Absolutely. Congratulations, Chandra. <laughs> it's uh, just gone 10.32 uh, here in Zurich. It's also 10.32 up in Copenhagen, where we're heading now to a lovely little bookshop, Books and Company. We were there a few weeks ago for the launch of our Holmes book on, a, on an absolutely glorious evening in Hellerup. I'm not sure how glorious it is today, but anyway, uh, Isabella Musavizade-Smith uh, is there, the founder uh, of the bookshop. Good morning. Good morning, Tyler, and it is absolutely glorious here still, even warmer than when you were here. Um, it, but thank you so much for coming out for the book signing. It was the perfect way to kick, kick off summer for us and uh, such a lovely evening. And yeah, thank you so much for that. Well, not um, a, and listen, your, your, your city and uh, your little <laughs> enclave put on a, a great show. And I have to say, I came back to Zurich sort of feeling a little bit yeah, a little bit jealous of of, of Hellerup, aside from sort of the fact that it was you know it was a, it was a great evening. But I think that uh, you've, you've you've really sort of developed uh, a, a wonderful uh, little little business there, and uh, I think one that needs to be repeated uh, in in nice enclaves uh, all over the world. And what a great uh, group of of customers you have! Of course, some Monocle fans and uh, and and some who are probably sort of newcomers to what we're doing as well. Oh, yeah, for sure. It was a great mix of people. And we just we do really have a wonderful community. And it's it's a reflection of what independent bookstores can do all over the world. And they do. And uh, it's it's just why, you know, bookselling is a labor of love. And it's mostly it's always actually more love than labor. So and that that evening was just a, a reflection of that. And it is I mean, it's such a it's such a great time for us. We love summer. Um, it is I mean, as much summer as we can hope to get uh, in Denmark sometimes, but it is a, it's a great time because people, you know, stock up for summer. There's still so much, of course, so much insecurity about where you can go and when uh, this year, but everyone's also so ready to switch off and just relax wherever they may end up going. And um, the darker months, you know, the winter months, they usually invite sort of more heavy reading, uh, but this is definitely season for lighter books um, or a combination of both. And I think people feel like I'll do the heavy reading, but I also need to be able to fall asleep in the sun and just pick up where I left off. 
Absolutely. So, um, yeah. And so we're having so much fun. We're actually making um, reading packages for customers, kids and adults. And then we throw in a surprise book with each package, something that we started doing during the pandemic. And it's just been a huge hit because it gets, you know, it allows us to introduce people to books that they might never otherwise have thought to pick up. So that's fun. And there are lots of great books. Um, I'll, I can mention a few that our customers have been picking up and that some of them are definitely also in my to-be-read list. Um, we do, uh, I, I don't know, I thought I'd start with a translation of a fun little French book. Uh, it's called The Reader's Room, and it's by um, an author called Antoine Laura. And it's, uh, it's sort of a mystery comedy set in the publishing world. Uh, we do like to read about ourselves in the book world as well. So it's a sort of, a, it's a story of um, an anonymous manuscript that's handed into a publisher and then a string of murders that are reminiscent of those in the book. So it's kind of a fun whodunit for people who love this world. Um, then there is The Premonition by Michael Lewis. Um, I'm actually a huge fan of Michael Lewis's. He is such a great storyteller and he has an amazing gripping style and, um, and honestly, he makes you interested in topics you might never have been interested in before. I mean, I've read about baseball and the finance market and stuff that maybe or definitely I would not have read about before, like in uh, The Blind Side or Moneyball. And in The Premonition, it's sort of a, it's a nonfiction thriller about a group of scientists who are trying to work, or trying to prevent the spread of the pandemic, the COVID pandemic, and are just being met by the Trump administration's sort of refusal to face the facts. And, and then with Michael Lewis, I just thought, I just heard something recently that was super interesting about his writing style, because he said that he doesn't actually come up with an idea and write about it. He instead, he chooses a person he finds interesting and follows that person. Because in his view, if you follow an interesting person, something interesting is bound to happen. And that is how he writes, which I thought is just quite unique and interesting. Is there um, maybe time for maybe yeah. one more one more piece of uh, of, of yep. fiction uh, before we maybe yep. maybe uh, give us uh, something from uh, maybe the world of, of periodicals? But uh, yep. you've yep. got you've got two more books on on the list here. Uh, which have, uh, what do you yep. recommend? Well, you know, I think that we need to like the, the Pulitzer Prize was um, was um, announced last week, and Louise Erdrich's book, The Night Watchman. Um, is is really an amazing novel. It's based on her grandfather's fight to prevent the U.S. government from removing his Native American tribe from their land in North Dakota. But it's also just such a, a just a sweeping novel, a family story, a story of love of one generation that wants to maintain history and another one that wants to move away. And I just think that's that's a lovely book to to read this summer as well, and thought provoking at the same time. Yeah. And then for the magazines, the periodicals, summer is actually a different time for us with magazines because I think people have more time for long form journalism and all the articles that they'd like to read uh, over the summer um, that they don't really feel they have time for during the year. And so stuff like The New Yorker or New York Review of Books, London uh, Book Review, stuff like that, or Vanity Fair is also very popular in the summer. And then we have a new magazine coming in, which I haven't actually seen yet. It's called Paperboy. And it has its goal is, they say, to lighten up the reader's day and deliver good news. And while they use established writers and photographers, they've also made it a goal to showcase high school kids and undergraduates who have talent and need a break. And I thought that would be a fun thing to pick up this summer as well, mm. along with, of course, Monocle and, yeah. 
of, yeah. of course, and and the, yeah. the, and which the the new issue should be landing with you a, a, any day now. I was going to say also, yes. uh, Paperboy is also we, we've had it uh, in in Zurich um, for a, a week or two now, and it's uh, it's completely flown off the shelves. Hopefully, it uh, it does the same for you, yeah. Isabella. Um, hopefully, we'll catch up uh, maybe um, at some point uh, over over the uh, the summer. We might have to do a, a pit stop with you one more time before the August oh, wave that. of travel hits. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I would love that. Looking forward to that. Uh, Isabella Musa de Visa de Smith uh, from Books and Company in Copenhagen. Just gone uh, almost 10.40 uh, here in Zurich. We're going away for a very short break. We're heading to Hong Kong right after this. The Entrepreneurs is Monocle 24's 30-minute weekly conversation with inspiring business leaders from around the world. Uncovering the secrets of resiliency and growing a company and the many definitions of success. Now we're craving curation in a very different way and have understood how small businesses have given complete life to our streets and communities. And I think we'll value them in a completely different way, which I'm excited about. I think in your standard entrepreneurial journey, there's a lot of times when you might want to throw in the towel. But if impact is really at the heart of what you do, you don't have that option. You have to stick to your guns. Join me, Daniel Bage, for a new episode of The Entrepreneurs every Wednesday at 2000 London time right here on Monocle 24. You're back with Monocle on Sunday on Monocle 24. Uh, Chandra Kurch is also with me here uh, in Zurich, as is Benno Zog. But as I was saying before the break, we're heading to Hong Kong now to speak to our bureau chief there, James Chambers. Good afternoon, James. Good morning, Tyler. Now, listen, there's been um, a number of uh, interesting developments uh, out of out of the region. And one that certainly uh, fired up uh, screens and pages this week was, was news that... Uh, Thailand uh, is is finally going to to open up in a way which looks like it might be somewhat sustainable uh, rather than just sitting on a golf course uh, for a while but maybe you bring us up to speed on uh, on that yeah that's right I mean uh, people often forget that a lot of Asia is has closed has been closed down now for 17 months and we've all been uh, staying at home and not flying anywhere so I guess a lot of countries, a lot of travelers are just looking at Thailand to lead the way in, in opening the borders. Um, and they're going to do it uh, on July the 1st with this thing they're calling the Phuket Sandbox. So they're opening up the, the tourist resort or tourist destination of, of Phuket, an island in the, in the southwest of Thailand first. Um, and any international travelers who've had both jabs can fly there you know, without any quarantine. Um, and then they, if, if they stay there for 14 days, they can then travel on to the rest of, of Thailand. So, um, you know, the, the, the Thailand, as, as, as we all know, is very dependent on, on tourists. So it, it makes sense that they're the ones who are going to take the lead in Asia. Um, so everyone around the region is, is looking at them uh, to see how successful this opening up can be. James, how has the story been met in, in, in Hong Kong? Because, of course, uh, as, as we know, uh, you, you need um, really a party of uh, or parties of the willing uh, on, on both ends. So Phuket and Thailand in general, of course, is, uh, has always been a big weekend uh, destination uh, for people in Hong Kong. But I guess it's one thing uh, to, to uh, be double jabbed and to, to go to, to the island. Um, but I guess it still means that uh, you're left in um, maybe a rather unfortunate quarantine position coming back or, or are there signs of change in Hong Kong? That's the major problem with this. Uh, as you said, you need uh, 
two to tango and most Asian countries still have quite restrictive quarantines, including Hong Kong. I mean, we'd have to quarantine for up to 21 days in a hotel uh, after coming back from Thailand. Uh, China, Chinese tourists, they make up the most of um, tourism to, to Thailand and they're not even allowed to travel. So uh, a lot of the hospitality operators in Phuket are being very dismissive of this because they just don't see large numbers of Asian tourists coming and that is their key market. Um, the, the governor of Phuket is saying he's expecting 600,000 tourists over the, that three-month period, but only 130,000 of those will be uh, foreigners. The rest they expect to be from the rest of Thailand. Um, your Thai Airlines is putting on uh, a suite of new direct flights to Phuket um, and they are to you know European destinations. You can, from July 2nd, I think, jump on a plane in Zurich um, and fly to Phuket. Um, and you can see that, the, I guess, the main market for now will be uh, European travelers, I think, because, as you said, here in Asia, we're, we're stuck where we are for the foreseeable. Well, uh, Benno is all around the table. He's already got his shorts on, um, I can say, James. So he's, uh, he's, he's all uh, ra- raring to go. Uh, maybe just... Um, perhaps uh, spool back a little bit into the week. And, and of course, uh, the story around the, uh, the Apple Daily uh, arrests, of course, the Apple Daily uh, being, uh, as the name suggests, uh, well, maybe not everyone sort of would recognize it as a newspaper, but of course, um, certainly uh, one of uh, the, the more liberal voices uh, and of course a pro-democracy voice uh, with, within Hong Kong, but as, as I said, some very high profile arrests and also something very good for the print industry, um, a real spike in sales of the actual physical newspaper as a result of all of this. Yes, that's right. It seems it's hard now to, to protest on the streets in Hong Kong. So, uh, you know, activists and, and protesters have taken to some other ways of showing their support for the pro-democracy side. One of them was, you know, investing in Apple Daily stock because it is a listed company. Um, but then on Friday, we saw, you know, hundreds of thousands of people, you know, flock to newsstands to, to buy copies of Apple Daily. Um, that was one day after the police picked up five of their key executives, including the editor-in-chief. Um, two of them ha- uh, have been charged with you know, uh, an offence under the national security law. Um, and uh, the, the editor-in-chief and the CEO are still in custody. They've they had their bail denied. So that uh, Friday was the, the first issue um, after the, the police um, f- you know, uh, flooded the, stormed the newsroom. Um, and so everyone around Hong Kong showed their support uh, for the newspaper. Um, and I think the thing now that we'll all be keen to see is if this newspaper can actually survive. It clearly has a huge target uh, on its back. And there's, there are some speculation that the, the government here in Hong Kong and, and obviously the government up in Beijing want to see it closed down by July the 1st. Uh, July the 1st is, is the day when the UK um, handed back Hong Kong to China, so it's symbolic in that sense. But this year it's particularly symbolic because it's the date when China will be cel- celebrating the 100th anniversary of the Communist Party. So that would be a big birthday present to give to Beijing. Uh, but would that also um, uh, entail another flashpoint? As you said, uh, of course, uh, protests uh, are, are increasingly uh, difficult. Uh, so, uh, yeah, obviously, readers uh, can, can vote by going to the kiosk and, and picking up a copy of the paper. But uh, does this also uh, potentially uh, make for a rather um, heated summer as well uh, w- within the territory? It's difficult to see 
any uh, protests coming back to the streets in, in any you know, significant numbers. And, and you know, first and foremost, you're still uh, not allowed to be in groups of over four. It's a bit, it's, you know, it's, it's going up beyond ridiculous. You know, we have zero cases of COVID in Hong Kong, but they still, they're still keeping those restrictions go, going. And you know, the conspiracy theorists, theorists in Hong Kong would, would say that they're waiting until July the 1st passes so that uh, nobody can uh, protest and disrupt, you know, the Communist Party's big birthday bash. So I imagine any easing of those rules will come after July the 1st. The government is coming under more and more pressure from business uh, to open up. Uh, but I think that won't happen um, before July the 1st. But even when they do, I, I can't see uh, people returning to the streets. I think protesters in Hong Kong and activists know now that they have to be a lot more uh, clever um, and a bit like after the Occupy protest in 2014, it's going to go underground uh, for the next few years. Um, and who knows when it'll pop up again. James Chambers, our bureau chief in Hong Kong. Thank you very much for that. Um, ben, at the start of the program, um, we were talking um, about your little um, adventures in Bratislava. Uh, you're at a summit uh, over there. Uh, Maybe not the, the sort of maybe not the, the the spotlight being on Hong Kong, but certainly in other corners um, of the world, the issue, of course, press freedom. Did this uh, pop up at your conference? It certainly did. Actually, it was uh, Globsec Bratislava Forum. That's the name of it, um, covering anything security related globally, but with a particular light on Central and Eastern Europe. Naturally, um, given the location. And one of the panels, for example, was on democracy in that region and press freedom plays, plays, uh, plays a very important role in that regard. Um, another issue that was widely covered and is, is done so at several others of these summits and, and conferences is the issue of the digital world, um, the digital transformation, media and the digital world, um, censorship, the influence of authoritarianism, both governments in Europe as well as outside powers not naming any of them, but it's usually the same two two usual suspects that come up, was a huge topic, apart from obviously the, naturally all the other issues that, that concern us, which is the recovery after the pandemic, climate change and security, the future of NATO, G7 summit and the future of democracy and so on. And just, uh, of course, thinking about the venue as well, uh, Slovakia, um, more than a few question marks, uh, certainly uh, surrounding some some high, well one very high profile case about of course the death of a journalist um, and some some pretty heavy handed uh, tactics around uh, the media there as well. But being on the ground there, um, a rather sort of open broad discussion, as you said, also great for people just to be back in back in a room um, and and gathering. Um, and you know, ridiculous as, as James was saying that Hong Kong is of course still locked down, but. Just maybe tell us that sense of bringing and being amongst colleagues again um, and, and the, the, the type of dialogue. Uh, it sounded like almost mildly euphoric. <laughs> yes, indeed. Euphoric is probably the right right term. It was remarkable. So everyone arriving at the venue, maybe to, to set the scene, had to take a COVID test first. Before that, you wouldn't be able to enter the building nor even pick up your badge uh, for the three-day conference. Once you were in, you were still wearing masks, naturally, uh, 
in sessions apart from from meals that were shared but there was immediately a different atmosphere there everyone had been missing these interactions as well i overheard conversations everywhere that is of people saying this is the first trip abroad that i'm taking this is the first time i meet my colleagues again and this is the first time people again could sit down for these informal coffee chats um to just discuss more frankly what is what was um discussed in more official capacity on the panels in the discussions themselves. Everything was naturally televised, available as webinars for everyone around the world. That is one thing, but the informal in between was what everyone was so keen on. So we spent the entire day attending these sessions in close conversations with ministers and experts well into the night each day. We had all missed that. We all immediately got a sense of how it works. We felt familiar with the atmosphere again. And it was really, really crucial to, to make these connections again and focus on the informal because we've had too many webinars in the past. So now we should make these personal interactions work again. Uh, Andrew Tuck is uh, back with us uh, in London. Uh, Andrew, is that your in-flight uh, viewing sorted out? Are you going to be downloading uh, the webinars uh, <laughs> from the Bratislava conference? That will get you the, that. That will sort of fill up your three and a half hours to Athens from uh, Heathrow. As long as there's a good kind of like starring role for Mr. Zog, then I'll be, I, I don't mind watching. That could be quite good fun. <laughs> but I've got, I've got a feeling there's just going to be like grand ceremonies featuring Chandra on, on, the, on the flight, isn't there? <laughs> it, it, it could be. I, I would love to fly with you. Okay, so I'm you, ready. You, you were looking for a wine that goes well above uh, 10,000 right. meters. And you know, the thing is the wine stay the same, but we change when we fly. So we feel that, that it's dry, that it's, the noise also, the humidity is, is pretty pretty high. So usually when you choose a wine there, it shouldn't be too tannic, you know, it shouldn't be too acid. It, it, you know, a lot of things shouldn't be, but what it should be, it's a good fruit, a fruity wine. And I know you love Chateau Musard and they have a, a the young wine, the, the basic wine is called the Jeune Rette, the Chateau Musard. And, and, and if you could find some bottles and sneak them in, they will surely fly well direction Greece. Okay, so Andrew, what you're what saying is, is don't, don't look for them in the, in the bottom drawer of the, uh, of, of the trolley when it comes down. So, so see what you can do at Duty Free. Thank you, Chandra. And just before we, uh, we spin uh, around the rest of the table and, of course, go back to Emma. Um, Andrew, maybe we should say why we're going to, uh, to Greece, because it's, uh, it's not just to, uh, to get a bit of sun on the knees. Uh, that, that could happen uh, as, as, as well. But uh, we, should, uh, we should probably come clean on uh, the, the raison d'etre of the trip. Well, uh, this, this autumn, we're going to have uh, the return of the Monocle Quality of Life Conference. And it's going to be in Athens. So we have a bit of scoping out to do of making sure we have every venue locked down. Uh, we have got the, the kind of mood musical right of all the different places that we'll, we'll unfold the conference. So uh, you and me are on a bit of a recce mission. And we have um, one or two uh, interesting dinner dates as well, which I'm not sure we'll reveal here. But um, so we have quite an exciting time ahead. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, we will be uh, confirming the exact date uh, in, in October. But uh, listeners, it will be happening uh, either the, the first or the second week. It just uh, depends on, on the venue. And of course, uh, we want to be make sure that we can, of course, uh, really deliver a, a fantastic uh, view and, of course, uh, a, a great space to host uh, two days. Um, Andrew, just in terms of uh, changing it up, if there's sort of, you know, one or two things that we've been thinking about and thinking about, of course, where we've been over these last uh, two years. What's going to be key in the quality of life discussion, do you think, this year? Well, I think there's, there's some human capital stories that we want to tell. I think the debate about what we can say and can't say 
is a, another really interesting thing that we we want to begin to engage with and how that unfolds around the world not getting caught up just in a kind of woke anti-woke debate but there is a there is a feeling that there are lots of conversations to be had about that and what better place than than Athens you know the the, the real home of of you know democratic thought of of expressing what you think to uh, talk about those things and i think there's a a real pent upness you know just what ben was talking about which is this desire to get moving or that's whether you're an entrepreneur wanting to start your business whether it's your you're looking for somewhere to find a new home and i think that again is is why we chose athens because it's it's got so many things going on and it really reminds me of when we went to lisbon that first time that sense of potential and possibility and of, of something about to happen so um we're very excited to be going to athens yeah and of course uh, listeners much more uh, on that uh, there'll be newsletters going out it'll be on our website and and many other places and uh, yeah andrew and i will of course set ourselves a deadline uh, to to make some type of announcement when we finish our recce uh, on on tuesday evening we'll uh, we'll come back to the wine recommendation in a moment but uh, maybe john let's go over to benno benno what were you were looking for something to take to the lake today wine wise Yes, with, your, with your ice cooler, not just your... <laughs> of course, it's hot and humid. I may go for a swim. So what can you recommend? Bearing in mind, of course, I'll drink responsibly because I'm going for a swim. Because, yeah, exactly. So And the, wine, well, the ice cooler is very important. So there are two things. Take from the shop here the rosé we created together with Monocle, our Oide Perdri, which is, is, is fruit and gentle and on, very enjoy it ice cold there's no staff discounts on that though just so you oh. know because if our coo is listening so she you knows she's always thinking about the margin so but it could be an early gift anyway but outrageous i yeah. still wrote that down yes yeah. so okay. and then and then because you're in zurich there's an interesting wine range of sparkling wines you know on the lake you're easy easy peasy and there's the um called the zurich Seco. It's done from the Boas winery and it's a, a blend of Pinot Noir and Riesling Silvaner, so the grape from here and it's, it's like this muscatine flowery taste and also chilled um, very good. Zuriseco, yeah. Zuriseco. <laughs> it sounds amazing. <laughs> well, why, why, why not? Uh, Emma, um, I'm not sure if we can get you a Zuriseco uh, over to... Uh, to to pay off the please, teacher. Please do uh, try, just, try very just, hard. Just, just to remind our <laughs> listeners that your 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 child, your son, um, in in cahoots with some uh, other classmates, did something awful. It sounds like, but not too awful. Nevertheless, you have to do nice nice to the teacher. Yes. So nothing too no no too, not too many bitter undertones, please, Chandra. But no. nothing but nothing too blousy either. So a wine no. to say sorry with, please. Yeah, and uh, sorry, and the uh, continuity, I think, also, because they have to work together in the future. So as, as you... Um, has he been expelled from the school <laughs> for good? He's on remand. So when you visit the winery, you know, you love the wine better. So I recommend that you give him a wine. It's even a Swiss owner. It's Brancaia. It's in Tuscany. Uh, they do very nice, like Chianti Classico or even a Bordeaux blend. But the good thing is they have a... Agriturismo. So you can go there, you can go with the class and the teacher and say, this could be a good idea to go all to Brancaia. There are big swimming pools also and uh, next to Castellina and Chianti and maybe discuss what really happened. I'm not sure, <laughs> that, the, I'm not sure the budget will stretch to that, but we'll have a go. Now that really sounds like bribery. If, yeah. if not, I'm going because I think I'm going to need it. <laughs> Diplomacy at its best. Finally, so, so just uh, you, as John, do we, uh, so Andrew and I will be in Greece later on today. Um, what do we need to be having, um, you know, alongside the loungers, looking out across uh, across the the Aegean? So, so when it's so hot, you know, usually I, I prefer to drink white wine, and uh, you have some Santo, some good Santorinis uh, with the Asiatico. It's an indigenous grape from the region, which 
which anyway tastes the best there in, in the place. So my favorite or one of the favorite wineries is the Vasaltis. And I uh, make just sure that it's it's nice and chilled and it's it's really crisp and fresh and, and uh, with some ginger taste and it, it should go well. Very good. Uh, Andrew, maybe uh, just uh, send, a, send a note to the hotel. They've got about five hours notice uh, to, uh, t- to get that on ice properly. <laughs> Well, you're, you're, I think, arriving just slightly before me, so uh, I, I, shall, I shall hunt you down and hope the bottle is, is already ready and uh, there to be poured when I get there. Very good, Andrew. Talk to you in Athens. Also, Chandra Kerr, Ben O'Dog, Emma Nelson, thank you as well. And also to Isabel Moussidi, Vizade Smith in Copenhagen and James Chambers in Hong Kong. Our producers today, Emma Nelson and Marcus Hippie, our studio manager here in Zurich, Desiree Bandley, and Steph Chungu in London. I'm Tyler Berlay. Monocle on Sunday is back next week from Gstaad, actually. Have a good weekend. Goodbye. <laughs>